Welcome to Ausfilm Creatives, a podcast about Australian creatives working behind the camera. My name is Peter Sylvester and I'm your host. Welcome back, listeners. It's uh, great to be back, and it's been almost a year ago since I started uh, season one. So last season, we had mainly cinematographers. So this season, I've managed to wrangle some a few different people that work in different parts of uh, working behind the scenes, from producers, directors, storyboard artists, production designers. And so I wanted to try and get a bit more variation and... I guess, a different perspective on what happens behind the scenes of a production. You know, you get to hopefully learn some of the insights of their own experiences. But uh, today, uh, our first episode back, we have Sue Maslin, who is a producer, highly experienced, with 35 years of contribution in the Australian screen industry. Her credits include The Japanese Story, which won tons of Best Film Awards, and more recently, the, the Dressmaker, which was a which was a highly grossing Australian film, making more than twenty million dollars in Australia itself. And she's also an educator, and she was also appointed uh, as an officer of the Order of Australia, which is a very distinguished honour to receive as her contribution in the Australian film industry. Welcome to the show, Sue. So wonderful to have you on board, and. Uh, Let's get started with a little introduction of how you became a filmmaker. Pretty roundabout way, Peter. Um, I actually am a country girl. I grew up on the plains of the Riverina and I thought I was going to be a vet <laughs> uh, or a marine biologist. I know that sounds a bit crazy coming from the Hay Plains. But anyway, uh, so my interest was in animals and in science. So I went off to uni to do a uh, zoology degree. Never in a million years did I think my career would have ended up in uh, on screen in film and television and that I'd end up being a producer. So uh, I finished my degree and I did start in, in uh, zoology and uh, did start doing an honours year. But I also recognised that as much as I loved it, it wasn't really where I wanted to go in terms of a career in the sense that in order to... Um, really have a career, you need to specialise and you need to become an expert in an increasingly narrowly defined field. And that just wasn't who I was. Uh, I went to university and my world opened up big time. It opened up in terms of politics, in terms of culture. Um, it, it opened my eyes uh, in a way that I wanted to discover as much as I could about the world and in those days, you could, you know, I did take time out and I did travel and I came back from all of that a bit lost and thinking I had no idea what I'm going to do with my life. And it was just a complete accident of fate that I happened to one day drive out to the other campus in Canberra. So I, I had been studying at ANU, but I drove out to Canberra Uni and thought, well, I'll have a look around this campus and see what else there is out there. And the very first building I walked into was the Media Studies building. Um, and it looked kind of cool, you know. There was mm. posters on the wall and film society meetings and photography classes and just thought, oh, this, this looks interesting. Maybe I could, you know, do something like this. And little did I know that they only took on four full-time students and about another mm. eight part-time students. But I dropped out of ANU and... Um, 
went and worked for the rest of that year and made the application and to the, to Canberra Uni. And to this day, I have no idea how or why they selected me, probably because I was the kind of outsider maybe. Um, they thought I was worth a punt and mm. it was life-changing. I fell in love, you know, 24-7 film, television, photography, sound, theory and practice and it, that was the beginning of a love affair that started about 35 years ago. Wow. And as far as choosing to to do producing specifically, is that you, you were doing many other roles or was it you kind of actually yeah. found your feet in, in that? How did that happen? Yeah, for the first five years or so, I was writing, producing, directing, uh, writing, producing, directing, like around 18 different projects. Uh, I, and I still say this to uh, film students or emerging filmmakers is just keep doing the work and honing the craft. Um, even when you get out uh, and you finish uh, having done a basic course, it's actually in doing the work that you learn the craft. So I was doing everything from short documentaries through to music clips, uh, training videos, um, short documentaries on, you know, sort of like the local hospital. Um, I was doing work, uh, creative work for Canberra Youth Theatre, so performance um, installations that worked with live performance. I was doing art videos. So as I say, probably about 18 short videos over a period of two years and then started work on the first documentary film, Thanks Girls and Goodbye, again, writing, producing, directing. And... That was like an apprenticeship. So doing, and it was on film, 16 mil in those days, and I knew nothing about film and I was living in Canberra. So mm. not a great auspicious start to a career in film. But um, I saw it as an apprenticeship. I learned as much as I possibly could in the process of making that film and reached out to mentors, many of whom are still my you know colleagues now and I have worked with um, subsequently. And just learnt on the job, you know, how to do a film and how to budget properly, how to raise money, how to actually, yeah, shoot and post-produce. And that film ended up uh, screening on ABC TV following a premiere at Melbourne Film Festival. Um, it was a film called Thanks Girls and Goodbye about the Women's Land Army during the Second World War. And at the end of all of that, I realised actually it was the producing that I enjoyed most. Um, so that... It was the idea of of being involved the entire, from the idea around the kitchen table through to the delivery to the audience, so the whole journey and everything that that journey involves and being involved in a creative collaboration around that was the thing that I found really exciting. The second thing that happened around that time is I started having the opportunity of working with really talented directors and I thought, oh, my God, this is what directing is really about. And um, so I got the opportunity to work with Sue Brooks, for instance, um, on a short drama. And I just sort of thought, no, that's that's not my strength. I see the gift and the talent of directors. Uh, my gift and talent really is in producing and collaborating with other creatives. Wonderful. And with uh, producing, as you already said it, that you're involved in the entire process and I guess a lot of people don't realise that the producer is not just someone to say yes, no to. You know, that's sort of the assumption when someone comes into the industry that producers there, oh, they'll just get the money and they'll just say yes or no and that's it. 
but it's actually quite an involved process, um, especially in the beginning. I think um, you you would probably have had a lot of input as far as how the the project turns out, whatever that that may, project may have been. Yeah, look, I mean, you know, just I'll come back to talking about the dressmaker in more detail, but just as a really quick encapsulation. Um, I read the book, I fell in love with the book, I optioned the book, I thought about directors. It took me two years to bring um, the right director on board, Jocelyn Morehouse, so I travelled backwards and forwards to the US twice to convince her to come home. I engaged the actors, I engaged the crew, um, involved in the creative process through the entire shoot um, and into post-production, and then I'm working with the distributor for the release of the film. So it's a seven-year journey on any given feature film. Mm. So, yes, first one on, last one off. I'm totally involved in the creative um, conceptualisation but working very closely, obviously, with very talented creative people to give them the opportunity to do their best work. That's the key. Mm. The resources, the time, the opportunity and the support to do their best work. Now, that is generally not really understood about producing because there's so much confusion around, well, what are all these producing roles? What do they mean? You look at the end credits on any given film and you see, you know, there's like four producers and ten executive producers and line producers and co-producers and associate producers. It's no wonder people are really, really confused. So in a nutshell, um, producers uh, can come together and collaborate in which case there may be more than one producer on a project or, in fact, a co-producer. And that's if you use the word producer and you accept the role of the producer, you the buck stops with you. So you take uh, legal and financial responsibility. You also take a level of risk. So your name is on the dotted line at the end of the day in terms of who holds the rights in the project, who is answerable to the investors, on whose head is it that the film is delivered or not. That That's what producer means in its rawest sense. And then within that, there's a continuum of creative producers, which are people like myself who are very involved in the creative development, right through to some producers who don't necessarily get that involved and are much more um, successful on the financial side of it and they can work very effectively with um, within a producing team so around that you've got an executive producer which is basically all care and no responsibility and I executive produce on a number of projects as well right now where I love helping emerging producers who've got great ideas have a great project uh, but they don't yet have the experience or the connections or the relationships or the track record to bring in the necessary funding or cast or resources. So in that instance, they are the ones, they are the producer, so they the buck stops with them, they hold the rights. I don't have any rights in the project, but I guide them and mentor them and will be happy in that situation to lend my name and to help introduce them and help them get their film made. The line producer is basically uh, engaged, employed by the production and they are the manager, if you like, of the production. So their, their job really is to be the go-between between between the producer and the rest of the um, the crew, the cast and the day-to-day management. They, they don't hold rights in the project. 
they're, you know, they come in usually at the commencement of pre-production. They're usually gone within, you know, one or two weeks of post. Mm. Um, and they're essential. You can't do your job without a really good line producer or production manager, as sometimes it's referred to. Yeah, my experience definitely has been the the line producer isn't on top of it it just goes madness you know with the, the amount of budget that's been spent you know even just a single day yeah but look i think for emerging filmmakers it's just i mean the key in all of this is to understand a film is not ever made by one person it's not made by a director it's not made by a producer it's made by a creative collaboration of producer writer and director you have to have a great script you need to have a smart producer and you need to have a talented director all effectively working together if you want to have the most chance of success of realising your dream. And it only works if you share the dream. You know, you have to be on the same train, if you like, you um, in pursuit of the same dream. Um, and so many collaborations fall apart where people have different ideas within the team. Um, so... In many ways that, you know, when people ask me, what does a producer do? Um, I really have two answers for that um, outside the obvious ones that I've just described. One is you're the champion for the project. That is when everybody else is struggling and dealing with the inevitable rejections because every project gets rejected, you know, many times over. But it's the producer who has to be the one who believes and to support everybody else in pushing forward and not taking no as an answer and, you know, being the one that gets gets that film made at whatever cost. So being a champion and having absolute belief is fundamental. And, of course, you, you could only do that based on your taste and based on your commitment and your gut feeling. So for me, I only do it. I don't do it very often. You know, I don't have a massive slate. I'm very choosy about what I take on. But if I come on board, then it's because I've got that level of commitment. So so being a champion is number one. And number two is when people ask me, what does a producer do? I say, I say, well, I'm actually in the business of managing risk. That's what I do. I actually am trying to, on any given project, enhance the creative risk-taking while at the same time minimise the legal and the financial risk-taking. I'm trying to enhance the creative risk-taking right across the board so all of the creatives have, you know, the chance to kind of really do something exciting and test out their ideas and push the form. Um, but at the same time, I know I'm answerable to the investors and also to the marketplace, you know, the distributors and the sales agents that I've sold the film to, that um, that we need to deliver what it is that we said we would deliver. So it's a constant, constant balancing act. Yeah. Every it's interesting because in your role, like, I mean, as a DP, I have some similarities in, in that I've got to be very much on top of the technical aspect of it and then the creative. Um, but same with producing. It's You have to have this real, really kind of interesting personality to be able to say, I'm so passionate about this project and I'm going to push it along, but then you have all these extreme responsibilities that most of the other crew don't really. Um, so that's that, that's uh, certainly a certain makeup you have to have as a person, I think, to be able to balance those two. You, you have to have an appetite for risk. Um, mm. You don't survive as a producer if you're looking for job security or financial security, um, not the least 
because all of the early work, you're taking that risk alone. So, for instance, you know, on a feature film, it could be one, two, three, up to four years in development, where as a producer, you're not receiving an income. You're raising money for script development, you're paying your writers, your script editors, the costs of research and development. But as a producer, there is actually no mechanism in which to um, earn a decent income. You know, you're lucky to get $5,000 per draft. So um, the only way to manage that is um, is to recognise it as an opportunity cost. So that is it's your investment in the development of the work and then to try and build it into how you structure the budget mm. and mm. the returns at the back end. It's very rare to get returns from back end on Australian feature films. Um, but, you know, if you build it into the budget so you can kind of try and catch up is one way of doing it. Um, another way is that you need to have a slate of projects so you're not ever just going from one project at a time, you're, you're always got other things on the go that you hope are generating a bit of revenue or income for you. Um, you have plan A, well, plan B and plan B. So, you know, plan B is um, hmm. getting your film to a point where you can earn a, um, a wage or a fee out of the budget. But plan B is developing other skills that you can raise money. So, for instance, or that, you know, you can earn an income. So, for me, that's teaching being a consultant, being an EP, um, being on boards. So just whatever way that you can piece together some form of income to get you over that development hurdle. Mm, today, almost all filmmakers, I think it uh, doesn't matter what role you play, you kind of have to have a multiple income stream, I think, these days because, yeah, it's just not the way it used to be, you know, where you could work on big projects one after the other and that's it. But now you've, you've, you've got a lot of gaps in between projects so definitely uh that's one way to look at it and so in saying that with being passionate about a project for you how do you do you look for a project or i mean i'm assuming you'd obviously get a lot of approaches but is it is it that process for you or, or you're actually more looking for some specific stories that you want to tell and, and you're seeing who's doing what kind of thing Look, it's interesting. It can happen in so many different ways. You know, some I'm a great believer in uh, creative relationships and, and working with talented people. And I've had long-term relationships with um, very talented filmmakers. So even Daryl Delora, who I've made many, many documentary films with, we, we actually went through that film school course together in 1982 and um, have been collaborating ever since. Mm. Uh, which is another thing that I do really encourage emerging filmmakers. If you find your tribe early, stick to it, treasure it, find who you love working with and really support each other and keep working together because actually it's really, really hard to find people that you connect with uh, on a you know an aesthetic level, that you enjoy working together, that you've got good communication um, and trust and it takes time mm. to build all of that. So. Um, Yes, I have had very long-term working relationships you know, with people like um, you know, Sue Brooks, as I said, uh, also with um, Jocelyn Morehouse. And I treasure, you know, treasured those relationships. Um, out of those relationships, the projects will flow. 
because you'll talk together and you'll go, well, what are you interested in? What do we feel like doing? You know, what's happening? The one thing that we don't do ever, and I would never recommend producers do, is look at the current marketplace and say, oh, looks like horror's the go now. Let's do a horror. Mm-hmm. Or look like, you know, rom-com or, you know, comedy is, you know, um, we've just had a successful one in the, you know, recently. Let's do one of those. If you try and second guess the market, you will always fail just for obvious reasons because you'll always be out of date. Mm. Uh, whatever you decide today, you're looking at a horizon of two to three to four years before that that um, project's in the marketplace. So it's a little bit shorter for television. It might be two years, but you're still going to be out of date. So trying to second guess the market is um, is just not a successful strategy. So it's much better to go with people's gut feeling, passion, excitement, connection, you know, connection with a story. And you think, I really, really want to tell this story. And I think there could be an audience for that. And then you think, well, who would be the audience for that? So that that's my starting point. Mm-hmm. And to that end, it, they've, you know, either come out of discussions with my creative team or secondly, I've read a book and I just um, think, hey, I read books all the time and most of them I love but they're literary works and I see them as a literary work. They, they, they don't pop into my head as thinking, oh, that, you know, because that's a great story and a best-selling book that it's going to make a great movie. It doesn't work that way. There's, you know, very particular kinds of books that translate well and many, many don't. The more literary, usually, the less likely it is to work on screen. Um, you know, the more literary, the more that, you know, poetic metaphor and internal monologues and, um, you know, style form your pleasure of the experience of reading, the less likely it's going to translate on screen because it's only as good as what you can hear and see. Mm. Um, and sometimes you just get really wound up about a story. And, uh, you know, the, you know, a lot of stories that I've been involved in over the years, particularly the documentary work, um, it's because, you know, you, you really care passionately about a missing piece in a history or a, a travesty of justice or a, um, you know, a myth that needs debunking. So, you you know, you get really wound up about that and you want to, you know, set things right or give an alternative um, viewpoint. So that's another kind of fire in the belly. But always it has to start with a fire in the belly. Yes, definitely. And And having that like you said, having that team and trust, I mean, it's, it's really hard because, as you said earlier, with having uh, to go through an entire project and, and maintaining that level of, you know, you know connection and, and agreement with the entire team, you, you need that massive trust and, and understanding because it's sort of like, you know, when you work, when I work with a director who I can do a shorthand with, that's when you know, okay, I think we're on the same page. But if you don't, then okay. And you're right. You you do need to find your tribe. It's such a, and it's a hard thing because it's, a, it's such a small industry in Australia at the moment that if you don't have that, it's uh, it makes it even more difficult. So you do have to <laughs> keep that keep that in in check, especially for you know up and comers. In your beginnings, did you have that really impacted you as a filmmaker, where you really realised this is so important to to make films or or a message is there some something that happened early part of it that really pushed you along and encouraged you to become that yeah yeah look i think um you know the very first documentary experience 
was the first step in that path because, like I said, I grew up in the country and I was working um, and I had a really good friend who, you know, likewise was on the land and she was a historian, you know, she was a history teacher and a researcher and she came across the story of these women who did all of this work heavy work replacing men on farms during the second world war when of course you know the manpower was at a real shortage because the boys were all overseas um engaged um in fighting and sue hardesty who i worked with kind of said i had she had no idea and she was telling me the story neither of us had any idea that this had gone on that mm. you know we'd you know this was in the um the early 80s that so many women were doing heavy physical labour, were shearing, were doing you know, the um, ploughing, the farming, the tractor work and everything for a period of, you know, around six years. And then all of that history was completely disappeared and the women of the Women's Land Army were not allowed to march on Anzac Day because they were not a real army. They were called an army, but mm. they were a civilian um, workforce. So there was nothing in the Australian uh, War Memorial about them and we just thought this is wrong if we don't know about them and we grew up in the country nobody knows about this story so that's why we set off on that journey and it um, subsequently became really the the driving force between behind so many of the films that Daryl Delora and I have done so for instance films about uh, the late High Court Justice Lionel Murphy, or the films about the Sydney Opera House and the story behind the sacking of Woodson and the fact that he was never able to complete the vision for that extraordinary building. Um, stories behind the Sydney Hilton bombing, you know, the conspiracy that sits behind what was then a, a kind of a, a publicly, uh, ex you know, and a, a, a legal witch hunt really against the Ananda Margis, which was completely wrong. Um, mm. They were finally exonerated. But so it became, um, yeah, kind of a call to arms to try and to give alternative stories that sit behind conventional wisdom or the orthodoxies that sit in our culture. And that's, you know, and that's also driven by the fact that I'm a feminist. So I've always been interested also in telling the stories that have not been told, which is actually a hell of a lot of women's stories. So... Yeah, that, that's kind of um, that, that that kind of ethos has been there right from the outset, and it informs in many ways also the drama work as well. Um, you know, they're often the I mean, all the drama work that I've done the feature films um, have been stories that are centred on strong female characters. And while that's fashionable now, I can tell you for the last 30 years, it's been an incredible battle, incredible battle to get those stories on screen mm. and get them um, financed, even though each time, whether it was Road to Nil or Japanese Story or um, The Dressmaker, um, we were convinced there was an audience there for those films. And there was, against all odds, there was. Um, but, yeah, it's it's um, a Herculean task at times getting a, a feature film financed. Yeah, I mean, and having that passion, that drive from that that angle is interesting because, I mean, for me, you know, like being a, a 
boy and a bloke, you know, I, I, but I love the Alien franchise, but that actually has one of the best female protagonists in Hollywood. Like It does. And, 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 yeah. and it's a really good example in that film where they they made it a norm, like in the story that she just gets on with the job and she's and ends up being the strongest character of the lot, really. You know, that's part of the story. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, there's so many stories. Uh, you know, I, I come from a communist background and how hard it was for my for my mum you know like she's super strong woman and and yeah. um you know it's it's crazy like there's so many little even small stories that could be told that you don't really realize and and you know and, and that's the thing like today yes it's today it's it's in in the front line of of all media and and in the in the sight of you know getting those kind of films made and having women involved more but at the end of the day it's like Tell, just tell these beautiful stories, and it shouldn't matter if it's a man or a woman, um, as well. Yeah. And, and it's and and that's the problem. Like obviously, it's always been that thing. Oh, you have to have a a male lead lead and all that. But I think today it's it's actually already starting to really change because even I think it has to. Uh, even subject matter also uh, the star thing. You know where where you go watch a movie because it's this or that person in it. I think that's starting to starting to get less and people are more interested in actual good stories and interesting stories. Yeah, no, that's quite right. And, and in fact, um, that's, I think, largely been driven by people taking more um, risk and chances and then being rewarded on the streaming services. Mm. They're, you know, they're looking at stories for the quality of the storytelling and, by God, there's good storytelling um, now because the writers and the directors and the cast are all doing extraordinary work in television and on uh, long-form series mm. that um, are on the streaming um, services. So that's, um, I think that is, has um, really, really significantly helped. And those stories don't um, necessarily require big-name cast. Um, in fact, a lot of the most successful ones are made in other languages and other cultures where we don't have a clue who the cast are yes. when we start watching them. So it's, um, you know, we are in, you know, incredible um, golden age again of uh, storytelling as far as that's concerned. Mm. Now we've just got to get more money to Australia so we can make more stuff here. <laughs> well, we've got to, no, we, we have a serious problem here yes. because unfortunately we're consumers of um, those services. We're not producers at the moment. And that's because, um, you know, like if you just take Netflix, for instance, um, you know, there's more than 12 million uh, people who have access to Netflix. It's sitting, I think, around 6 million households and it'll probably be even more given recent events. Um, so they're raking in around half a billion dollars every year in subscription fees and less than 1.5% of that gets spent on local content. Mm -hmm. There's no quotas, there's no minimum spend, there's no requirement for those streaming giants to do anything out of Australia other than use our location as a base, you know, for, um, you know, worldwide and mostly US content, you know, to provide services and locations and crews. Mm. Now, that's not a healthy model going forward and it um, is a profound, profound challenge to our capacity to continue to tell, you know, good Australian stories and Australian voices. Yes, yeah, um, it's, yeah that's, that's a challenge for us, all of us, because... You know, there's a lot of, you know, kids coming out of film school and that and 
there's way more people interested in filmmaking than the jobs available. So that's, you know, like, yeah, you might get a job on one of those big films, but, you know, like now with the issue with coronavirus, it's shut down. So, you know, it's one of those things. And our dollar's pretty good for Americans, but what happens when we're back up to 75, 80 cents, you know? Then suddenly there's no work. Yeah, I think we have a real problem with um, the the film schools because the curriculums, by and large, are still very film-based. Mm. And it's not connecting with the the real time situation in the industry. We're not preparing young people at all for how you know the realities of how to survive in um, a a screen industry, which you know going forward is um, increasingly fragmented, um, increasingly requires you know very diverse skills and the capacity to manage you know your working life. In diverse ways because you're not going to have a career in any one area um you're certainly unlikely to have a career in film because film is under such um, stress at the moment uh, when i say films you know feature films australian films are under it and the whole business model has pretty much crumbled in the face of the way that um, the streamers have rewritten the rules and the way that they're operating um, and not the least because consumers, you know, all of us are watching way more online and way less in the cinema. So it's just um, there's a lag. There's a really dangerous lag that's going on right at the moment because we have literally around, you know, more than 10,000 students studying media at any one time, film and television, screen media at any one time, coming out thinking, many of them, thinking they're going to get an, a job in the film industry. It's just not going to happen. Mm, that's right. And, I mean, I, I don't know, do you have some insights or maybe some solutions on how, how we get back on the ball? I mean, my view is a little bit, I guess, because I've come from a, a business, you know, I've run my video production business for a good solid 10 years, so I've, I do have a business mentality about filmmaking specifically is that, you do have to make commercial products on top of art products to to bring that bring that money in, and um, that's my solution. That we need to maybe allow those projects, that, like you said about Netflix, and that that you know let them get them supported and funded because that that will bring in the money and give a lot of work, especially if it's just a a bit more ambitious project. But also, obviously, in in that understanding is that that money will come back, and then we can actually start producing even more. Australian stories and unique stories on top of that. So that's my view, but I don't know. Yeah, no, you've hit the nail totally on the head. <laughs> and, in fact, it's one of the reasons that I run a creative leadership program um, as, as which sits alongside the kind of film work that I do, and it's all about trying to help creatives find a way to have a sustainable um, business and a sustainable creative life. And what that means is starting to think more entrepreneurially here in this country, I don't believe we've been very good at it uh, by and large and we've become far too reliant upon a very heav- heavily subsidised system, you know, um, an arts-based funding system, screen funding system that has actually mitigated against people being really, really smart about business. So I think on the one hand we all have to become much more entrepreneurial Um and certainly, you know, producers need to stop thinking that their job is producing films. Their job is about producing an audience experience 
So what we end up with on the screen is only one small part of the overall journey of the delivery of what we give to audiences. And we have to start thinking really, really entrepreneurially about what that experience might entail. It could entail everything from the social media experience that sits around it. It could entail impact experience. It could entail what we're doing with um, the dressmaker, for instance, um, other exhibition-style experiences, i.e. touring, uh, you know, costumes or assets connected with um, the film. It could be the educational experience that, you know, sits on the back of the film. But you, ca you can't think in terms of producing something for the screen anymore, I don't believe, if you want to ser be serious about um, having a business. The second thing is that the key is about diverse revenue streams and being flexible enough and skilled enough, like constantly upgrading your skills, that you can, as exactly what you, you're doing, that you can have a business model that is flexible and operates on a number of different levels and can identify opportunities, um, you, know, you know, in a range of different areas, whether it's being a service company for some types of projects or you're delivering, uh, you know, when I say service company, you know, you're there to assist other producers uh, or, you know, international producers help make their, their work or you're providing very specific service, services to clients. Um, but whatever it is, it's diverse and that when you come to do your annual tax return, you've probably got at least, you know, seven to ten different uh, strands to your um, revenue streams and they're not all coming from the same sector. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's it. Yeah, you have to be multi-talented these days, especially if you want to try to stay in the film industry, as we kind of put it. Working on The Dressmaker, Talk about the inception and obviously the challenge that you, you've just talked about, the fact that the screen industry is, you know, it's hard to get films on. And when you made it, it was probably in a little bit of a better situation, but still was already on its way out with streaming and everything. So I guess when you took on the project of Dressmaker, this would have gone through your mind and you've, you would have read the book and gone, oh, this is awesome, I want to really produce it. But how did you, I guess, pass that? that phase when you're like, yeah, but can we make this film? Yeah. Well, that, that phase went on for about four years <laughs> for a start. So, um, you know, I mean, right at the outset, um, I read a book and just go, oh, my God, I love The Dressmaker. I get it. I grew up in that world. I understand these characters. It's fun. It's tragic. You laugh. You cry. All those costumes. Mm. Yeah, those costumes in that setting. So all of a sudden I'm thinking, and I just kept seeing, you know, the image of the, you know, the couture, the beautiful 50s couture against the Australian outback. That's visual. Mm. That's cinematic. Yeah. But the other plank to what makes cinema cinema is emotion. So big emotions. And there were, you know, surprises in that book that were like, oh, my God, you can't do that, <laughs> you know. Um, do you think one thing I know about audiences they love being taken on a journey, like a cinematic journey that takes them out of their normal world. Audiences want emotion. They want to laugh. They want to cry. They want to be scared. They, but the, um, the other secret ingredient is I know that audiences love to be surprised. So if you've got things that really surprise your audience, mm. 
because that's the key. It's the kind of little golden magical ingredient that they see a movie and they go to their friends, you have to see this movie uh, because, and sometimes it's even better when they say, you have to see this movie but I can't tell you what happens. You just have to mm. see it. <laughs> that's even better. So um, so that for me, the dressmaker had, had all of that. And then it was a matter of thinking, well, who would be the right person to get on the same page with this? You know, who would get it? Who understands how to do a film that is a, that is irony where you've got, you know, comedy and tragedy on a knife edge? Because at any given moment, you know, it can if you go too far one way, you know, you get too comic, it gets silly and it just turns into farce or caricature and I cannot stand Australian films about country people that are caricature. I hate it. So it was never, ever going to be that. But if you go the other way and you get too serious and too tragic about it, it's no longer funny and um, people aren't necessarily going to love the characters, mm. um, particularly if you've got a leading character that does things, you know, like burn the town down, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big problem. So for me, um, it was about, okay, I love the book. I can see it. I can see how you could do this. And then I, it was a, a journey then to find the right um, creative team. And that, of course, started with um, the writer-director, Jocelyn Morehouse. But she turned me down. You know, I, had to, I flew over to L.A., sent her the book. We had a really great discussion. And she just sort of said, well, I, you know, I'm sorry, but, I, you know, this is not the right time for me to be coming back to Australia. And um, so I came back empty-handed. And she was sort of interested in it but hadn't kind of really connected with it at that point. And I thought about other directors but I just kept coming back. You know, it just has to be her. I get, you know, she's got the sensibility because I've seen her do it and she did it beautifully with her first feature film, uh, Proof, mm, with yeah. um, Russell Crowe and Hugo Weaving, which was a deeply ironic mm. film like The Dressmaker. It was about a blind photographer. Mm. Yeah. You know, somebody who doesn't trust what people are telling him, so he takes Polaroids. So deeply, deeply ironic film um, and full of emotion as well as comedy. Yeah, that, that, that so, film definitely balanced it really well. I actually saw that when I was like, oh, jeez, would have been 16. Or, and, but I got it. Like it was yeah. so good from that respect because yeah. I, I'm, I'm a huge believer in stories where you do have to have – the multiple elements in a story not just be like that one tone you know too depressive or it should have a bit of comedy and should have drama and romance and all those things in within a story if you can write it well enough so you know the proof was that in a way but also obviously dressmaker definitely had that yeah and they're the kind of movies I like as well. And, you know, it's exactly, you know, the previous films written by Alison Tilson, um, Japanese Story and Road to Nil, both had the comedy and the tragedy. So that that's kind of what I love doing. So it was like bullseye and it's what Joss loved doing. So I had to go back again to L.A. and this time convince her and this time when I went back she said, oh, thank God you didn't show it to another director. Um, you know, I'm ready now. I really want to do this. And she came back, you know, with her family, moved back to um, to Australia, and then we started working together. Was there something specific that convinced her? Um, to- I think it was the right time to think about coming back, and she loved the book, you know, so she connected with it. 
Um, she hadn't directed a film for 16 years, so it was a really big deal for her to come back and I uh, just, you know, she knew I believed in her and I was going to you know, walk over hot coals for her. So I think that helped. Nobody had actually done that for her for a number of years. Mm. So um, that might have been a part of it. Um, and it was good timing because PJ, her husband, wanted to come back to do his film as well, Mental. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, the, the stars aligned and um, it was lucky I went back to, <laughs> to uh, try again. Mm, it's amazing. You have, you have to have those, those moments, opportunities and available, but you've really got to take them because sometimes it's like... Oh, no, you've got to work for them. You, the opportunity does drive. You have to be persistent. You make the opportunity. You say, I am coming back. I'm seeing you. Let's meet on this day. The opportunities don't present. You know, as a producer, you have to make them. And then you, you hope it goes your way. <laughs> That's what you do. <laughs> your films, in the words of Laura Ziskin, and I know I've been quoted many times, so I apologise to your listeners if they've heard this before, <laughs> but my mantra is, in the words of Laura Ziskin, films are not made, they're forced into existence. Forced. That's what it takes to get anything made. So anyway, um, having Jocelyn back and she wrote a beautiful script over the course of about two years and then we went through another whole round of rejections. We got rejected everywhere. We got rejected by cast. Um, we took the film to Screen Australia and the, um, you know, the script assessors at the time didn't like it and said, no, you can't possibly kill off the love interest halfway through the film, change that. You can't possibly burn the town down at the end. Nobody will, you know, accept that, change it. And we said, no, we're not, you know, that, that's not what we're doing. So we went through rejection after rejection. Doesn't matter how many rejections you get. You just need one, one or two that say, hey, yeah, we get it. Mm. We love it. Um, the, you know, the script was turned down probably by about three or four major distributors, but one distributor, Universal Pictures, said, we get it and we love female audiences. And this was back in 2011. And like I say, there was no interest in women as an audience back then, mm. none. But Universal knew that it was a market because they'd had success with films like uh, Mamma Mia, Fifty Shades of Grey, Secret, uh, not Secrets, Bridesmaids. And they were the only company that I was able to have a serious discussion with about audience and the fact that women were a commercial demographic. And so it was like, yeah, great. And that that's and then, you know, Kate Winslet after waiting, you know, for about nine months, um, she said, Yes, uh, you know, I'll do this. Um, so it all kind of came together uh, reasonably quickly after Kate came on board, Universal Pictures came on board. But even that was not enough because back in 2012, this sales agent whose job it is to sell the film to territories around the world said, I'm sorry, Sue, it's not enough. You're going to have to have an A-list male star. Mm. We can't sell this movie without an A-list male actor. And I said, you've got to be joking. You know, this is a film for a female audience based on a best-selling novel by a female writer. Mm. You know, um, we've got Kate Winslet, we've got Judy Davis, no, not enough. That's how bad it was and that's how far we've mm. come. You'd never mm. have discussion now. Anyway, that said, thank God for Liam Hemsworth. We love Liam Hemsworth. <laughs> and mm -hmm. that um, Liam said, yes, he'd come back to do it. 
it is interesting how it, it has changed. And I think it's good that it's constantly being pushed that to show that diversity is so important in films from all respects. And it is interesting how much battle for you guys it would have been to to push that because it makes no sense to me. I'm like, yeah, it's 50-50. Like 50% of the audience is female. Like what's – I don't understand how they don't see that as, as, a, as a number, uh, a good number. Um, so, yeah, just can you imagine the frustration you would have had with that a little bit uh, when that people tell you that? Um, the numbers have been around for a long time. This is not new stuff. Um, mm. The statistics have actually shown for some time that in Hollywood, if you look at the top 200 highest grossing films of all time, um, around 16% of them have a female in the key protagonist role and 23% of them have a dual male-female protagonist. And of those, um, if you look at, you know, the, um, the the top Disney films, the ones that actually perform really well are all with female protagonists, which is why you have seen a rush of films, you know, whether it's, um, you know, in films like, you know, Frozen or um, in Sleeping Beauty, um, Moana, a whole bunch of them have female protagonists because they perform really, really well commercially. Yeah. But the figures have around for a long time, but the culture hasn't changed because the, the green lighting process is completely dominated by uh, men still. So it's a cultural problem that is blinding people to the economic opportunity. Yeah, and, and you can't tell me that Titanic majority of the audience was female. Like that film was a great film, but all the repeat views were yeah. mostly female. And yeah. that was 97, like, you know, that's, okay. yeah, so yeah. it's good that it's moving the right direction anyway now, so which is good to see. But Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely changing. Um, I mean, the interesting thing about The Dressmaker is it actually did demonstrate that women were a um, commercial demographic because mm. it did skew female in the first instance. Uh, a lot of men were put off by the title and didn't go to it thinking it was a chick flick. But then they sort of, uh, their wives, their girlfriends, their mothers dragged them along and they realised actually there's a lot more to it and, and many of them really, really enjoyed it. But it did skew primarily female and it didn't matter. The film still made more than $20 million in the box office. So th mm. that is phenomenal to say women actually do go to the movies and they're a consumer force. So we'll conclude the uh, first part here and continue deep diving into The Dressmaker, into the production and the release of the film and also cover some other aspects of the industry. So look out for it and it's only coming in a week's time, so not long wait. And thank you very much for everyone listening. Mm.